Well, amen. Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4. Appreciate the team. And uh, at the end of our service, you're going to hear a, just a quick announcement from our worship pastor search team. So I encourage you, don't, don't skip out right after the message, right? You, you'll want to hear from them and uh, excited about that. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. It was uh, 2013, the class 3A state quarterfinals in basketball. And it was Millwood versus Hugo. Now, Millwood was a perennial powerhouse, and they were expected to win this game very easily against Hugo. However, at the end of the game, Hugo found themselves winning 37 to 36 with just a couple seconds left in the game. And Hugo also had the ball. And all they had to do was inbound the ball, get it to one of their teammates, and let the time expire. They win the game. They advance in the playoffs. So there they were, a couple seconds left, winning 37 to 36 against the mighty Millwood. The Hugo player had the ball, got the ball, passed the ball into a, a boy named Trey Johnson, his teammate. All Trey, again, had to do was just dribble the ball for the clock to run out. They advance. But he had a wide open look at the basket. He had a wide open look at the basket for a layup, and he got a little greedy, right? You know how that it goes in those moments. Like you're like, man, it's just right there. I'm right here. I just got to shoot, right? It's just a natural instinct. And so Trey went for the layup and scored just as time expired. The fans were going crazy. The players on the bench, the coaches, they were celebrating. They're going crazy. And even Trey celebrated with excitement until he realized it wasn't Hugo fans. It wasn't Hugo players. It wasn't Hugo coaches that were celebrating. It was Millwood's. Trey had scored a layup on the last second of the game, but he had scored it on the wrong goal. Millwood advanced as they beat Hugo 38 to 37. If you know Trey Johnson, reach out to him and say, hey, I feel for you, guy, right? But in 2020, the world was wrecked. We know this. We all lived through it. COVID and everything that came with it, from shutdowns to isolations to cancellations and mandates and political everything, all of it ripped through our world ripped through our lives and our communities and our psyche like a twister, wreaking havoc, causing all sorts of damage. And I think it's going to take us decades to fully comprehend the impact of COVID. But here we are now, 2022, two and a half years later after COVID hitting in a post-COVID reality in a way, and the dust is somewhat settling, and everything we were battling pre-COVID seems to have now escalated to a whole new kind of level from the crisis for truth spiritual apathy natural disasters distress and depression division anger identity confusion political everything all of it seems to be on a whole new kind of level than it was just three years ago in many ways we wake up saying what world am i living in right now 
And whether we want to admit it or not, no matter how hard we try to recapture the before, there's something off, almost seemingly with everything. We try to move on as if, as if everything's normal and as it once was, but something's off. We feel it. We know it. And I'm convinced that these items like identity confusion, crisis for truth, and so on, all these items are like pockets of air that are just bubbling at the surface of the waters. They're like extensions or tangible signs of an invisible something beneath the surface, right? Like when you go to the pool or the the river or the creek or, or the pond and you see bubbles on the surface, you know there's something beneath the surface causing those bubbles. And I think that something is this. All these bubbles we are seeing in our world right now, it's not necessarily that we lack passion and intensity, we as the church. It's not that we lack good programs and events and sincere motives. It's not necessarily that our doctrine needs adjusting. It's not that we're out of shape or that we're not running hard. But perhaps the church, especially here in the West, generally speaking, our ultimate problem perhaps beneath the surface is quite simply as Christians we're pursuing the wrong goal. Perhaps we've taken our eyes off of Jesus like Peter on that water and are not seeking him, not focused on him, not pursuing him, and as a result, we're sinking. We're drowning emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, failing to live lives worthy of the calling to which we've been called because it's really hard to do that when you're drowning. So my prayer today and going forward for all of us as individual believers but as this church and the church at large is that all of that would change collectively that we would pursue Christ and live like Christ in everything and in anything. And so in a way we begin a new series within our series, Live Light. Up to this point we've looked at the church, our identity, our unity in Christ Ephesians 1 through 3, but now Paul shifts his entire letter in chapter 4, and he sets the stage for the second half of the book, which is very practical, by using this word, therefore. It's one word that transitions the first half of the book to the second half. Therefore, because of all of this in Ephesians 1 through 3, because of who we are, because of our identity in Christ and our unity in Christ, we are to live differently now. We are to live light. We are to live love. We are to live Jesus in everything and in anything. Think of it like this. In Ephesians 4, 17, Paul says this. This is the NLT's version. With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do. Why? Because they are hopelessly confused. Now this is an interesting verse because Paul is addressing his reader's identity. Which is fascinating because remember, we gather from the earlier chapters that Paul is writing to Gentiles. Yet he's telling them to not live as Gentiles. It'd be like Paul telling us, you are U.S. citizens, but don't live like U.S. citizens. That's in essence what he's saying. So Paul is addressing their identity to get them to see that now that they are children of God, their identity is found in Christ. And so their identity is no longer primarily wrapped up in their ethnic national background. 
our identity in Christ is not wrapped up in our ethnic national backgrounds or denomination or a specific local church or our political affiliation. Our identity is not wrapped up in ourself. Our primary identity is now in Christ. I am a Christian, a little Christ, a born-again believer, a redeemed son or daughter, regardless of ethnic, national background, and so on. Which is greatly important because if who we are has changed, then it follows that what we do will change. In other words, behavior naturally follows our sense of identity. Behavior naturally follows our sense of identity. For example, my occupational identity is a pastor. But if tomorrow my occupational identity became a police officer, it would follow that what I do would change. What my life would look like, how I would spend my day would change. We naturally, subconsciously at least, we know this. It's why when somebody asks you, hey, what do you do? You respond with your occupational identity. Oh, I'm a teacher. Oh, I'm a police officer. Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm a a pilot. You're responding with your occupational identity, but it infers or implies what you do. I fly planes. I teach kids. I lead the church in a way. Right? I make sure everything is taken care of in the community as a police officer. We respond with our occupational identity, which reveals what we do. And if you respond with what you do, then the other person would infer your occupational identity because behavior follows identity. Well, in the latter half of Ephesians 4 through 6, chapters 4 through 6, Paul wants his readers to know that who they are, their identity, is that they are children of God, no longer children of this world. And he's made that clear up to this point. Their identity has changed. And so, therefore, what they do had better change. Their behavior had better look different. How they act, how they react, how they speak, how they think should change. They are to be imitators of God now. They are to live a life worthy of the calling to which they have been called in everything and in anything. So, as Paul would say, take off your old humanity. Take off that old self, that old nature that was full of confusion and chaos and wickedness and idolatry and division and lust and hatred and greed and gossip and gluttony and slander and hypocrisy, etc., etc. Take off that old self and instead put on the new, literally the new person, Live in such a way that you are worthy enough to bear the name Christian. To bear the title son or daughter. Now we're going to cover chapters 4, 5, and 6 in five weeks. A lot faster than we did the first few chapters. And these three chapters really come down to this, if I could summarize it. Alright, so it comes down to therefore. Therefore, because of our identity... Because of our identity, because of everything Paul has talked about from Ephesians 1 through 3, we are now to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Meaning, we are to live unity or oneness. We're to live responsibility. We're to live purity. We're to live humility. We're to live intensity. And we'll see that 
through the second half of the book. But let's begin here, chapter 4, verse 1. This is what Paul writes. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do this with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain or keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's stop right there. So Paul says, I'm begging you. Therefore, because of all of these things, Ephesians 1 through 3, I am begging you, urging you to lead a life, to live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have received. Now in Ephesians 5, 1, Paul says to be imitators of God. And if you could take this statement in 4.1 and the statement in 5.1, there are two statements side by side that capture Paul's mind and heart in this latter half of the book. What he's ultimately getting at in his language is that I urge you to walk in such a way that you are worthy enough to bear that name Christian or to bear the title son or daughter of God. In other words, don't just take the name, walk the walk. Talk the talk. Live the life of Jesus. Imitate him. Be perfect as he is perfect. Think like him. Speak like him. Act like him. React like him. You are sons of the light of the world. So live as children of the light. No matter the culture, no matter the season, no matter even the circumstances, no matter our emotions and feelings, we are to imitate God, to live a life, to lead a life in such a way that we're worthy enough to bear that name Christian. Ultimately, here in these verses, though, in the opening verses of chapter 4, Paul is desperately trying to get us, the church, to maintain unity. Literally, this word means oneness. We are to live as one. For he says there is one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father of all. We are to do everything possible to live oneness. Now, we've looked at unity. We looked at unity just a couple of weeks ago, but we have not explicitly looked at the characteristics needed in our lives if we are to live oneness. And this is the difference, really, of the second half of this book versus the first half. Paul gets very practical in how we ought to live this out. And in verse 2, Paul tells us the characteristics, then, that are to define us or our lives as Christians. Characteristics that we are to live out. Characteristics which ultimately produce oneness or unity. And out of all the characteristics Paul could have listed first, he starts with humility and gentleness. Together these words capture this idea of meekness. Quite literally the word for gentleness means meekness. Together, these two words capture this idea of meekness. We are to live meekness. 
For meekness will lead to a disposition of patience towards each other. Forgiveness towards each other. Grace, extending grace and love towards each other. And it ultimately produces oneness. Which means oneness requires meekness. We will not have unity. We will not live oneness without meekness. Which begs the question then, what is meekness? I don't know if I, I, I might be like you. I never heard a sermon on meekness growing up, and I have no idea if I took the current definition of meekness in today's culture, it, it would be something like a weak person or a passive person or a pushover. However, the biblical idea of meekness is, as one person said, a total lack of self pride to the point of a lack of self concern. It is the quality or characteristic of not being overly impressed by your sense of self-importance. Don't be over-impressed with your opinions, your viewpoints, your accolades, your titles or positions, your accomplishments, your whatever. Because if you are, then you will consciously or subconsciously elevate yourself over others. You will not bring unity but instead you will sow discord and division. You will not live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Instead, it will lead you to be impatient with others, unwilling to bear one another's burdens, unwilling to forgive and love and show grace to others. You will not be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Oneness requires meekness. Meekness can also mean this idea of a willingness to bear a heavy burden or be willing to endure difficult circumstances on behalf of another person. So in other words, the biblical idea of meekness rejects the attitude, as one person said, the attitude of self-sufficiency and superiority. And instead, it lives completely for God with no agendas other than to please the Lord. As Paul says here, he is in prison for the Lord, which he also says in chapter 3, verse 1. But in chapter 3, verse 1, he says he is in prison for the Lord on behalf of his readers. He's living meekness. He is rejecting this attitude of self-sufficiency and superiority. And instead, he is living completely for God with no agenda other than to please the Lord. Thus, he can urge us to do the same, to live meekness, just as he is living meekness. Another person describes meekness this way. The biblical idea of meekness is a controlled strength that puts everything in the hands of God. It's founded on trust, a trust in the Lord, and it always denies self. And it almost always grows alongside humility and wisdom. In that it seeks another person's interest at the expense of its own. Meekness is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, as James would say in James 3, 13 and 17. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. He said, come to me. All of you who labor and are heavy laden, you're burdened with stress and anxiety, mentally, spiritually, physically. So come to me, the right goal, and I will give you 
rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you, and hear this, and learn from me. This is what he said, I am gentle. It's the same word Paul uses here in Ephesians 4. I am meek and lowly in heart. And in doing this, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. In other words, live meekness. And in so doing, you will find yourself living patient towards each other. Showing love, a supernatural kind of love towards each other. Extending grace towards each other. You will find yourself eager to maintain that bond of peace at all costs in Jesus. You will consider others over yourself. And the paradox is, you will then find rest and peace. But ultimately, I think it looks like this. In John 13, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And John gives us this fascinating detail. In John 13, 3, he said, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had authority over everything, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He knew that he was the Word become flesh. That in the beginning he was the Word who was with God who was God. He knew his supremacy and his authority. He knew the honor and the glory due his name. He had full knowledge of this. He was fully aware of this. John tells us in John 13, 3. So knowing this, what does he do in as we're told by John in verse 4, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments. He put something to the side and then he took a towel and tied it around his waist. Knowing his supremacy, his authority, his power, knowing the honor and the glory due his name, he takes the form of a slave, a servant. He takes the form of meekness. And then he pours water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Knowing who he is, his supremacy, the honor, the glory, the respect to his name, he proceeds to wash their feet. He takes the form of meekness on their behalf. And then John concludes this little scene in verse 12 when he says, when he had washed their feet, and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place. And then he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? So you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I don't care about your status, your title, your supremacy, your authority. You are to live just as I lived in meekness, on behalf of each other. For I have given you an example, he says, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What John is showing us here, what Jesus is showing us here, is a glimpse of what Jesus did on a much more cosmic scale. And we just sang about it earlier. And that the Word who was with God, who was God, rose up, 
left his glory in heaven, and literally lived meekness. Took the form of a slave, a servant. For what purpose? He laid down his life. For what purpose? On our behalf. Sinners such as us. And then he resumed his place in glory, in supremacy, in honor and perfection at the right hand of the Father. He lived meekness and told us to do the same, and blessed are those who do. Paul picks up on this imagery, this cosmic level of meekness, when he pens these words about oneness and meekness in Philippians chapter 2. He said, listen, be of the same mind. Be one. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility or in meekness, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He said, Paul, why should we do this? Have this mind among yourselves, he said, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He laid aside his outer garments and he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, quite literally being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of washing our feet, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God's the Father. Out of meekness, God brings oneness. But also what we learn is out of meekness, God brings greatness. The paradox, rest, peace, greatness, How it comes out of meekness. After all, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they are the ones who will inherit the earth. If we want oneness, then there must come meekness in all of us. We must live with a total lack of self-pride to the point of a lack of self-concern on behalf of others. We must not be overly impressed by a sense of our self-importance, our opinions, our thoughts, our viewpoint, our accolades, our traditions or accomplishments. Instead, we should reject the attitude of self-sufficiency and superiority. And instead, we must live completely for God with no agendas other than to simply please the Lord. I'm in prison for the Lord on behalf of you, Paul says. And if there's ever a time in which you and I ought to live meekness, it is now. A time in which everyone just wants to hear themselves speak. The explosion of podcasts. People just talk, 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 talk. The explosion of YouTube channels and social media. Everyone seeking their own justice and agenda. All their thoughts and opinions, their fame, their glory. And yet, at the same time with all of that, people are becoming more and more confused and burdened 
There's no rest. There's no peace. If there's ever a time in which these words apply to us, it's now. A time in which there's so much confusion. And that confusion has given rise to frustration. Frustration has given birth to anger. Anger has produced malice. Malice has lent itself to division and distrust. We see it across the board from the top down. And there's really nothing left on the progression line after division and distrust except destruction. On some level, individually, families, political systems, communities, educational systems, economic systems, churches even. And this is where we are in 2022. The world just seems to be tearing itself apart in confusion, frustration, anger, division, hatred. Everyone seeking just to get their own. No one living meekness. Thus, no one with rest and peace for their souls. Everybody going after the wrong goal. Yet what Paul is saying here is that this cannot be true of us. We are the church. One in Christ, united in Christ, a new identity. We are the city on a hill, the salt of the earth. We are the redeemed sons and daughters. So thus, we had better be running after Jesus, living lives of humility, gentleness, meekness, living patience and forgiveness and love towards one another, living oneness. Because there's one body, there's one spirit, Just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one God and Father of all who is over all. He's in all. He's living through all. You know, it's interesting. COVID exposed a lot. But what it exposed for myself and I think for many other pastors and maybe even churches. Is that over the last couple years leading up to COVID and maybe even now. We were like Simon the Sorcerer in Acts 8. We thought we could buy the power of the Holy Spirit for our own personal gain. For our own self-promotion. For our own superiority. Catchy logo, mission statement, buildings, events. So we can be the coolest cat in town that everybody's talking about. All the while, deep down inside, beneath the surface, just running after the wrong goal, and thus not living lives worthy of the calling. But God, in a way, I think has used COVID and is still using the current circumstances we're living in to wreck that mindset, that disposition. Today, just as he did in and through Jesus in his day, And if you and I want to be effective in this world of brokenness, if we want the power of the Spirit to be present in and through our churches and culture, then we have to stop running after the wrong goals. We have to stop living as the world does. We have to stop living as we once did when we belonged to darkness. We must start running after Jesus and start living a life worthy of the calling. We have to start imitating God. We had better start acting like Christians acting like sons and daughters and how we speak, act, react, how we think, and it begins with meekness. Where you and I are humble and gentle, meek and low in spirit, patient towards each other, forgiving one another, showing grace towards one another, loving each other, seeking to maintain and live oneness. We must be united in these things together. 
running after the right goal. Let me give you this last example. There's a rather big football game that took place on November 20th, 1982 between Stanford and the Cal Bears in college football. 75,000 crazy fans hollering for their respective team. With about a minute left, the Cal Bears were beating Stanford 19-17 to with one minute left. Stanford had the ball, fourth and 17. If you don't know football, you have to get a first down in four plays. If you don't, then the ball turns over to the other team. So here they are, fourth and 17. They've got to go 17 yards in one play, and they're on their own 13-yard line. This is Stanford with the ball. John Elway, who would eventually play for the Denver Broncos, won a couple Super Bowls, was the QB for Stanford. And he led them down the field in less than a minute. And with eight seconds left, he got Stanford in position to kick a field goal. So the Stanford kicking team comes out, kicks the field goal, and it's good. Stanford is winning 20 to 19 with four seconds left, essentially game over. That's it. Just a kickoff away, and only a miracle could save the Bears. So with four seconds left, Stanford kicked it off. And as they kicked it off, the Stanford band and some of their fans began to think the game is over. And so they started to storm the field. We have victory. Game over. And what pursued was chaos, commotion, and confusion on the field. For little did the band know, or the fans, that the Cal Bears in spite of the chaos and the commotion and the confusion, were still moving forward as one unit. In oneness, they continued through the chaos, the commotion, and the confusion. Here's a live picture of a cow bear carrying the football with fans and the band members on the field. And together they ran towards the right goal, so to speak. And the miracle happened. The cow bears crossed the goal line, and scored a touchdown as time expired, beating Stanford in what is now known as the play. They won that game together as one, despite the darkness, the chaos, the confusion, the circumstances in which the opponent said, you're done. Despite the mess on the field, And you and I, we are living in a world of darkness, chaos, and confusion. There's a mess on the field, just like in Paul's day, just like in Jesus' day, just like in Ephesus and Rome. What we are witnessing is nothing new. And if we want to successfully run the race set before us, to run effectively and not aimlessly, then we had better run towards the right goal. Then we must press on together with all meekness and patience and forgiveness and love Living oneness. Living a life worthy of the calling. We must imitate God as his children now. A new humanity, a new identity. We must truly live meekness. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite the team forward. In this time of response, what some of us need to pray is, Lord, give me meekness. Don't allow me to think too highly of myself. 
so as to elevate myself over others, my viewpoints, my opinions, my interests and needs. Crucify in me this pride, this desire to declare myself more important than the person next to me. For some of you, that begins in your marriage, in your family. For those of you, that begins at work, in the community. But most importantly, it's got to be here in the church. We will not live as one without meekness. Nor will we have rest and peace for our souls. We'll continue to be miserable and live miserably. It begins with meekness. Come to me, Jesus says, the right goal. Learn from me. Live meekness. And in an odd, paradoxical kind of way, he will give you rest and peace for your soul. Father, we come to you right now. We thank you for today, your word. And Lord, there is chaos and confusion and commotion in our world in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons. And Lord, you've called us to live lives worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And it begins with the disposition of meekness. In our hearts, Lord, humble us. And we recognize who we are, who you are. And may that humble us. May we live meekness in our homes, at work, in the community, and especially in the context of the church. May we be eager to maintain the unity in the spirit, the bond of peace. May we live oneness. Crucify in us any pride, any thoughts about self-sufficiency and superiority. Humble us. May we live as Jesus lived. In Christ in my prayer, I'm going to ask that you stand with me. I'm going to be down here, down front. If you want to come talk to me, make a decision about salvation, baptism, joining the church, just a prayer request. If you want to come down here to pray, it's open for you during this time of invitation.